Good morning, Village Church. Good morning. If you are new with us, my name is Michael Fueling. I'm the lead pastor here at the Village Church. This morning, I have the joy of opening up God's Word with you. We're going to be in Genesis chapter 18, so would you open up your Bibles to Genesis chapter 18. We are starting a new series on Sodom and Gomorrah. It's just two weeks long, don't worry. Two weeks of doom and gloom, Uh, right? Right? Better than our uh, Minor Prophets series, which was nine months of the wrath of God about five or six years ago. That was amazing. That was great. I thought it was fun. Um, So as a pastor, I have the opportunity to mediate conflict on a semi-frequent basis. And uh, I am amazed, truly mind-numbing and amazed, at how people can twist a story. Have you ever seen this? Like, mostly you see it with your children, Okay. But then when you realize adults do the same thing, you're like, wow, we're all just kind of big kids, but better liars. Every once in a while, every once in a while, um, the one claiming, claiming to be wronged is actually the one doing the wrong. Um, the one claiming to be the victim is actually the victimizer. I, w- I want to show you this picture. Actually, this uh, picture comes from an article about narcissists, and I love this article. Um, but I want to show you this, this picture because um, I feel like I'm the guy behind the camera, and somebody is giving me this narrative. And, and, and they're saying the following. Uh, Look, the guy on the right says, I'm a victim. I'm being attacked. I'm the victim. I'm being attacked. And on the surface... The narrative is, is fairly, it's fairly clear, but sometimes, sometimes in the middle of mediation, my pastoral spidey sense goes off, and I'm like, something isn't right about the story you're telling me. And then I, I step back, and I hear all of the information, and I end up seeing this, that the, act, that the victim is actually the victimizer. Um, and somehow in this story, the narcissist is what this is actually about, but um, even bigger than that, I'm amazed how often people who believe that they are really on the receiving end of this are actually, they're actually the victim. And so what I've learned here is that um, sometimes, at first glance, things are not quite as they seem. Um, sometimes in pastoral mediation or any kind of mediation or in any kind of conflict, right, one person will give their side of the story, but when you start seeing God's side of the story and the other side of the story, you realize that there's actually more going on than you really understood at the beginning. And so here's what I found, that there are things that happen in the Bible. There are things that God does, and we actually do not know the whole story. We know parts of the story and sections of the story. And so culture, uh, secular culture, gets a hold of these narratives, and here's what they frame God as. God is the um, uh, victimizer in our culture. He is the oppressor. He is the bigot. He is the misogynist. He is guilty of mass genocide. He sits on the sidelines and watches our pain. And so if you really allow secular culture to frame your view of God, um, by and large, this is the, the emerging dominant view of culture towards God. But is this the, the whole story? And obviously, we're believers in Jesus Christ, and the Word of God shows us a much bigger part of the story, but I can't tell you how many people I meet that are not believers in Jesus, and I'll say, what, are your view, what is your view of God? Or we'll get into a conversation about their God concept, and they are reflecting these kind of concepts and ideas to me. And I'm like, you only have a small part of the story. The God of the Scriptures is much bigger and much more beautiful than that. I think you need to get the rest of the story. And so what culture does is it gives us these phrases. Go to this next slide here. Uh, How could God, and then you fill in the blanks. Where was God when? God, if you loved me, you would have. A God of love would never. Have you heard these before, by the way? 
Um, so here's what happens. Culture has this powerful way, secular culture, of pre- or implanting predetermined questions that are geared to lead you down a mental, emotional, and spiritual pathway towards doubt and a lack of trust. And we've, we've explored these concepts so far in Genesis. When doubt creeps into the believer's life, which is what secular culture wants to have you do toward God, doubt him, doubt enables stupidity. Or as we say, doubt enables dumbness. You show me somebody who's doubting, I will inevitably almost always show you somebody who is now going to justify a non-Christian lifestyle more and more incrementally over a period of time. Now, is God at all afraid of your doubt? Well, sure, the answer is no, not at all. God can handle your doubt. God can handle your questions. God can handle all of it. Now, here's what I want you to do. Turn with me, Genesis chapter 18. God is preparing in Genesis chapter 18 to do something profoundly just and loving for humanity. He is preparing to do something profoundly just and loving for humanity. But without all of the facts, this decision of God will make him appear to be vile, to be terrible, and to be a victimizer. Um, This is one of those stories where if you don't have the whole story, you're going to massively misunderstand who God is and what he's doing. And in the next two weeks, we kind of want to give you the whole story of what's happening here with Sodom and Gomorrah. Because on the surface, it's going to appear as if this this is mass genocide. So what's going to happen in this chapter, actually, Jesus himself is going to show up. And Jesus is going to deliberate with two angels. And here's the question that Jesus is asking the angels. Do I tell Abraham what I'm about to do? Do I tell him what I'm about to do? Because if I tell him what I'm about to do, and I tell him all of the reasons, there are just some pieces of information that are far too weighty for people to handle. But if I don't tell him, uh, he's going to watch what I do, and he's going to struggle with doubt and People who doubt inevitably do dumb things. There's too much at stake. I've got a job for this guy to do. And so Jesus is actually going to deliberate with these angels. So again, we're starting this two-week series, and here's what we have to answer in these two weeks. One simple question, is God just? Is God just? It's Abram's, Abraham's question, and it's going to be our question too. So let's set some context. We're going to um, look at verses 1, 2, and 3, but then uh, our main text today is going to be in verses 16 to 33. Uh, here's what happens at the beginning of the chapter. And the Lord appeared to him, Abraham, by the oaks of Mamre where he lived, and he sat at the door of his tent in the heat of the day. He lifted Abraham, lifted up his eyes, and look, behold, three men were standing in front of him. Now, here's what you need to know. I'm going to give you kind of some of the answers here in the front end so we can get through this. Um, the three men are, number one, Yahweh. Uh, number two, it's going to be two angels. In fact, this uh, Yahweh is not just the Father, or the Son, or the Spirit. It is specifically Jesus Christ, the Son. Why do we say this? Because whenever God shows up in a physical form, um, it is Jesus. The Father and the Spirit never take bodily form. Incarnation is reserved for the Son, Jesus. And so in the Old Testament, when God shows up in bodily form in Genesis, uh, God walked with Adam and Eve in the cool of the day. When God meets his people and he shows up bodily, this is Jesus himself, pre-incarnate, pre-Christmas, if you will showing up, meeting people, having conversations with them. Now, you don't know this yet, but that's what you're going to find out. It's Jesus and it's two angels. When he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them, and he bowed himself to the earth and said, 
Oh, Lord. Now, you got to remember, Abraham is filthy rich, incredibly powerful, and he doesn't bend the knee to anybody. And so even Abraham has a clear idea of who one of the men is. And here's what he says. Oh, Lord, if I have found favor in your sight, do not pass by your servant. And so for the rest of the chapters, here's what happens. Um, Abraham shows incredible hospitality to these three men. He serves them, butchers an animal, basically waits on them hand and foot. Then God has this really encouraging word for Abraham. Hey, FYI, I've been making you wait for like 24 years. Uh, and so I'm going to kind of tell you when this whole baby thing is going to happen. Um, your very old wife is going to conceive. And one year from now, I'm going to come back and you're going to have a baby. Now, Sarah is actually eavesdropping on the conversation. She laughs out loud um, to the point where God actually hears her. And then he says, he says to Abraham, why is she laughing? What's so funny? Like, is this, you think I can't do this? Like, that's basically the, the communication. Uh, now we get down to verse 16. And uh, here, there's, there's another behind-the-scenes context piece of information you just need to know. Um, so, in Sodom and Gomorrah, but the emphasis here is on Sodom, great atrocities are happening The blood of dead children and women is crying out to God. Vile acts beyond your comprehension, we'll get to more of that next week, are happening. And God is, he has heard enough. And so the idea here is that God is going to come down and God needs to personally assess for himself. Now, does God know everything? The answer is yes. Don't get lost in some of these Old Testament narrative details. But here's what it says in verse 16. Then the men set out from there, Abraham's house, And they looked down toward Sodom. And Abraham went with them to set them on their way. Three men, Jesus, two angels. The Lord, Yahweh, says to the angels, Jesus says, Shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do? Seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be Blessed in him. Why, why would God even begin to question whether or not Abraham should be given this information? I mean, if it were you, would you want to know? Of course, your answer is yes. Um, I, I don't know if any of you, probably the answer is no, but uh, I don't know if any of you have ever seen Mass Judgment of God. Um, I never have. But the closest maybe that somebody in this room might have seen is um, the dead bodies of those in war. And here's what I know about people who get a glimpse into war. They spend the rest of their lives overcoming nightmares and massive PTSD. That there are some experiences that the human soul is not created to endure. There are some pieces of information and knowledge that we were never, ever, ever intended to know. Deuteronomy 29.29 says, The secret things belong to the Lord our God. But the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever that we may do all the words of this law. There are secret things. There are things that God withholds because if we had this information, it very well might crush our souls. I shared with you um, uh, about a couple months ago when we were teaching in Genesis in the Garden of Eden and the Tree of Life. Um, One of the things I shared with you is why on God's green earth when Adam and Eve were in the garden and they have the opportunity for the tree of life to live forever and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil of which they were forbidden to eat, Why did they choose the tree of the knowledge of good and evil over the tree of life? It drove me nuts. Their sheer curiosity. I'm like, eternal life or knowledge you're never supposed to have? They picked knowledge they're never supposed to have. And the moment they received this knowledge, it crushed them. 
It crushed their souls. It crushed their minds. It crushed their character. They are not created, nor were they equipped to endure this kind of information. Um, I shared with you a story about my daughter, and I I'd asked her, um, I said, Elle, are there, are there any things in life that you wish you had never seen or never known? Her immediate response was yes, and she talked about a scary movie that she started watching, and she said the scary movie, movie um, she thinks about it at night a lot. And I didn't ask her what the scary movie was. Uh, she's got a very tender conscience. My guess, it could have been like how to eat fried worms at this point, right? And so I'm like, okay, why do you wish you had never seen it, babe? Um, because when I go to bed at night, when things are dark, like the scenes from this movie come back into my brain, and I'm like, were you watching it with me? <laughs> you know, like, like, when are you having access to this kind of scary stuff? But it was interesting because there are some things, there are some ideas, there are some images, there are some facts that the mind of a 10-year-old girl, a 7-year-old girl, let alone a 38-year-old man, are not created to endure. There are some pieces of information that leave us psychologically damaged. And here's what God knows. Not everything is good for us to know. I'm the most curious person in the world. The worst thing you could have ever done for me was put me in the garden and say, don't eat that. Don't open that door. You're going to die. I'm like, will I? Right? Like, I get Adam and Eve. Right? I am the most curious person in the world. Uh, And so, like, don't do that to me, but I get it. But this is our nature. We are by nature curious people, but we need to be by nature submissive people because God knows what is right and what is best. And here's what I know about culture. It is sinister. Um, I have learned my kids are young and we reserve their media heavily, but I know there is a sinister agenda to implant ideas and questions into their little minds to take away their innocence and to cause them to doubt God. The questions are predetermined. They are put together with intentionality to cast doubt and to dismantle faith. This is the very nature of the evil one's strategy to pop culture secular media. This is what he does. And so as Christians, we got to be aware of this and know this, whether it's our mind. So we think, I'm older. I've been a Christian for decades. I can handle any information. And I'm telling you, if you knew the secret things of God, you wouldn't be saying that right now. That there are things too weighty and too deep for us to really understand. Verse 19 goes on, the Lord gives a rationale to the angels. He says, for I've chosen him that he might command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice. By the way, something nobody was doing in the earth. Nobody. I mean, the worst of the worst was Sodom and Gomorrah, right? But we're talking there is nobody just and righteous like God is wanting Abraham to be. Whatever God's going to do with this man and his family, they're going to be distinct and set apart. The prototype for the Christian family, that we are to be distinct and set apart, that righteousness and justice are to be uh, adjectives that describe our homes, that this is a place where evil is left out. There is information that doesn't make it through these doors because it is not healthy or good for any human being to endure them. And then he says this, so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. There's a, a lot at stake here. There's a lot at stake. I don't want to do anything to jeopardize this mission. Have you, ever, have you ever watched someone in a crisis of faith, by the way? Uh, I just, just get that person in your brain or go back to the time when you had the crisis of faith. It, it almost always leaves the person spiritually immobilized. It just freezes them. And God's like, I, I, the information that I might have to give Abraham might immobilize him. He's got a job to do. Now, 
Now here's, here's what you know because, I don't know, it's like thousands of years later. But if you're reading this, you don't know yet what God is going to do to Sodom. He hasn't said what he's going to do. All we know right now is that God is going to peek down. The outcry of blood has come to him. And he needs to validate whether or not this is true. But he knows it's true. And then he's already predetermined in his mind and in his heart, if it is true, exactly what he's going to do. But the reader doesn't know that yet. We know it's going to be bad, whatever it is. Verse 20 goes on. Then the Lord said, Because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great, and their sin is very grave, we will, I will, go down to see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me. And if not, I will know. Here's my question. Is God trite? Please say no. It's got random, like, ah, judgment, uh, blessing, right? No. God is intentional. God makes willful, intentional, good, holy, just, right decisions. First time, every time, no questions asked, okay? We're on the same page with that, right? So here's what we get. God is going to go down. He's going to check this thing out. And the blood of these people is crying out to him. He's deeply concerned. And then here, here, here's what you don't know. Abraham, like his wife, is eavesdropping on the conversation. Isn't that frustrating? Like, God, you know everything. Why are you letting him eavesdrop? And he's like, I kind of wanted him to eavesdrop. Oh, okay. All right, that's weird and fine. So verse 22, so the men turned from there and they went toward Sodom, but Abraham still stood before the Lord. Verse 23, he is going to talk for three verses straight, by the way. And in the Old Testament, when somebody talks for like more than a verse to God, it's almost never going to go well for them, okay? So he's about to talk. And he's listening to what's going on here. In verse 23, it says, Then Abraham drew near, right? So he's hearing this, and he, the two men leave. Jesus stays, and he's like, Hey, can we have a discussion, you and me? Um, I, have some, I have some questions and some concerns. I sense that your intent towards Sodom is less than desirable. Now, Village Church, pop quiz. Who lives in Sodom? His nephew Lot, right? Oh, that guy. Every time he shows up, so frustrating. He is the thorn in Abraham's side. Reminder as you read through Genesis, when God says go one way, don't go another way. When God says do something, don't do something else because God has a way, though he forgives you of letting these decisions come back to you for a very, very, very long time to remind you that his way is always true and right. Here's what he says in verse 23. Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Have you ever been asked a question? that is bound up with so many assumptions that are wrong that you want to be really defensive? Has somebody ever said something to you that the implications of which are so ugly that you want to go right into attack mode and defensiveness, right? Every one of you have because you've been married, right? If you're single, right? Your parents have probably done it to you. Your friends have done it to you, okay? If you're a child, you completely understand this because you inevitably have been falsely accused, right? Like this is that we're all victims, aren't we? Every one of us, we're just... We're all narcissists. Here's a few assumptions I just came up with. Tip of the iceberg, by the way. By the way, in this singular question, uh, here's what Abraham is communicating to God. Abraham's moral comp- compass is better than Yahweh's. That somehow, I don't know how Abraham uh, feels like he can take the moral high ground right now. But in the very nature of the question is like, hey, my, my moral high ground is up here. Yours is clearly down here. So like, I think something is wrong with the decision you're making. Like, if you read this guy's life, he's a moron. 
like one decision after another. He, he does not, hey, um, honey, why don't you go um, have a sexual relationship with Pharaoh so they don't kill me? Is that cool? Hey, I, I'm going to have a baby with your maidservant. Is that cool, right? Like this guy doesn't get the moral high ground with Yahweh at all. But right now that's where he puts himself. Number two, the implication is that God is impulsive. That somehow God is trite. That God's like, oh, I can't believe these people. And he just responds and he's like, I'm going to wipe everybody away, right? I'm like, wow, I... I just don't have in my brain that God is impulsive and that all of a sudden he's like, I'm going to destroy everybody. It doesn't matter who's there, collateral damage, whatever. Like, I just don't see that picture of God in scripture. Um, Number three is a PR issue. Abraham is probably like, "Um, I don't think you understand how this is going to make you look to other people. So let me do some like protection from you because I don't think you probably can do that job on your own, right? I think Yahweh has every right to be insulted, but he doesn't say a word. He could say, how dare you challenge me? Who do you think you are? Like, remember Job, right? God says to Job, basically, shut your mouth, right? You, you have no clue who you're talking to right now. You have no idea. You have no idea how good I am. Are you omniscient, perfectly intentional? No. Perfectly just? No. You have no idea the stories that I'm hearing. You have no idea the blood that is crying out to me. You have no idea the sexual victims, the slaves, the abuse, the beatings, the vile nature of it, the rapings, everything. You have no category of what is happening. Who are you to even speak to me? Here's what I love about Yahweh. Sometimes when we have serious doubts, he doesn't respond with a fist. He just says, keep talking. And Abraham keeps talking. (laughs) Suppose... There are 50 righteous within the city. Do you guys remember the story? I'm just going to forewarn you. The next part's really boring. Don't check out. It's just, if, like, are we there yet? Are we there yet? Are we there yet? Are we there yet? And it's like, no, stop asking the stupid question. But God's patient. Suppose there are 50 righteous within the city. Will you then sweep away the place and not spare it for the 50 righteous who are in it? Implication, God, I know more about Sodom than you do. You're sitting up there on your little throne, looking down, all distracted. You got all these people to deal with. Like, like I know what's going on in Sodom. There's at least 50 righteous people in there. And this is apparently where you're supposed to let God answer. But Abraham says, I'm going to keep talking. Here we go. Far be it from you to do such a thing. To put the righteous to death with the wicked. Assumption, assumption, assumption. I mean, at what point is God going to go, shh, no more. You have no idea what you're talking about. But he doesn't. He just keeps letting him talk. Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked, so the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be it from you. FYI, just a little tidbit for you. Don't say far be it from you to God when God says he's going to do something. Don't disagree. It just, I don't know. I just don't feel like that's smart. But then he said, this is, this is where I think he gets personal. He says, shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? You call yourself the judge of the earth, and yet you would have the audacity to act with such injustice and pretense? Who do you think you are? Abraham, in his mind, is up here, and God is down here. God is the victimizer, and the Sodomites and the Gomorites are the victims. Like his whole narrative, the whole lens through which he is seeing this, it's just off enough to be completely wrong. What I love about God's relationship with Abraham is that he's so stinking patient with his doubts and with his questions. And so here's what the Lord says. No defense, no nothing. He just says this, verse 26. And the Lord said, if I find 
at Sodom, 50 righteous in the city. I will spare the whole place for their sake. And then Abraham, uh, feeling a little bit like, I don't know, too awesome or good for himself, begins a negotiation with God. Abraham answered and said, Behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord. Like, I think the tone of God was such that it put Abraham back in his place. I don't know. Like, these are the moments where I want to hear the audio so I could, like, teach on the audio. Like, here's how he said it. I don't have that. One day. Behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord. I, I who am but dust and ashes. Doesn't it feel almost like false humility? Suppose five of the 50 righteous are lacking. That's 45, by the way. Will you destroy the whole city for lack of five? And he, Yahweh, said, I will not destroy it if I find 45 there. And again, he spoke to him and said, Suppose 40 are found there. And he answered, For the sake of 40, I will not do it. And then he said, Oh, let not the Lord be angry. And I will speak. I know you're angry. I know you're fuming. You feel disrespected, misrepresented, all these false assumptions. And I probably put myself in the moral high ground. Maybe I shouldn't have. Ah, but let me say it again. Um... What about if there's 30? Suppose 30 are found there. And Yahweh answered, I will not do it if I find 30 there. Doesn't this feel like Sam I am, ham and eggs, da da da? Like, and he said, Behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord. Suppose 20 are found there. Now, what's God, what is God doing? He's dismantling gently and patiently all the false assumptions that Abraham is bringing to the table. Let's just pause. I've shared this with you probably 10 times from the pulpit. When I came to Christ, when I, when I started to realize in high school, junior high, who, who God was, the gospel, like I believed at four, but you know, you just get older and things start to make sense a little bit, right? If you were to take a snapshot of everything that 16, 17-year-old Michael believed about God, right? And now I've had a couple degrees since then and a lot of time teaching and time in the Word, okay? And you were to compare the two of them, here's what I would probably tell younger Michael hey man, um, God loves you. Um, I'm sort of disappointed in you, to be honest, right? But almost everything you think you know about God is wrong. Here's what you have right. Uh, Jesus is God. Trinity, you got that down. Bible's authoritative word of God. Salvation is by grace through faith. Rose again from the dead, coming back. You got the basics. You're going to heaven, bro. Okay? But the nature and character of God, uh, he is far too small. He is so little in your brain. And you are so big. And God's going to spend the rest of your life inverting this whole thing. And we could go attribute after attribute after attribute. What I thought God's omniscience was. What I thought God's sovereignty and salvation was. What I thought the nature of hell was like. What I thought the wrath of God was like. The anger. You go through every single attribute. I made God small and me big. I did exactly what Abraham did. And, and I presupposed at times that I even had the moral high ground over God. But here's what I found with almost every single believer. I don't care who you are or how long you've been walking with the Lord. Our God concept needs to be continually dismantled and re-put back together according to the word of God. Because culture is so powerful, what we've grown up with, the false messages that we've received, sometimes in church, and God forbid, even in my teaching or other people's teaching, that the Lord consistently has to bring us back to the, wor- to the word and deconstruct our God concepts because one bad God concept can lead us down a pretty negative trail. And so God puts us back together and he reframes us and that's what he's doing for Abraham. And aren't you so glad that God didn't come to immature young you and say, let me tell you all of the ways that you are wrong and you insult me with your wrong views of me. In fact, God, like I'm amazed regularly in teaching. I'm like, wow, I got that one wrong. I always thought God was like, 
this and now he's like that. And the fact that God gently reveals these things to me is just striking. Like God is so merciful and patient with us. He plays the long game with us. And I think his view is like, look, time for me is that's so quick. I know it goes slow for you guys, but for me, it's lickety split. So when you get to heaven, you'll figure it all out. By the time we get there, you got the gospel right. I'm going to dismantle some things for the sake of the mission. And, um, but I'm just so grateful for how patient God is in dismantling all of our pathetic worldviews. And so verse 31, he answered, For the sake of 20, I will not destroy it. Verse 32, then he said, Oh, let not the Lord be angry. And I will speak again but this once, will you? Yep, he will. Suppose 10 are found there. Some people have surmised that there are um, 10 people in Lot's family. Uh, it's actually really hard to determine how many people are in Lot's family. Uh, it's, it's, it's either, it seems to be either four or ten. I don't know. Well, it's hard to tell. So maybe there's 10 people in Lot's family, and maybe he stops there because he's like, listen, so you're telling me that even some of like my nephews, my, 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 my second cousins, whatever, that you're telling me that they're not even righteous, that they're so corrupted by Sodom and Gomorrah that they're no longer righteous? He says, suppose 10 are found there. And then Yahweh answers, Listen, man, if there were 10 people there, I wouldn't destroy the city. What's the implication? There's like almost no one. I mean, next week we're going to get into the details of who God is willing to save out of Sodom and Gomorrah. But verse 32, um, it just ends, and the conversation is over. God has entertained this for far too long. And God has been really, really, really patient Unbelievably so, with Abraham's inquiry, negotiations. And God's character, his patience, his love, his justice are being fully seen. And, and somehow Abraham goes from wagging his finger at God and accusing him of immorality and injustice to finally seeing that maybe there are things I don't know. And maybe, maybe, in the things that I don't know, truth is found there. And maybe the questions that I've been asking, maybe I predetermined the answers a bit too quickly. Maybe it's not the whole truth. Maybe the questions are even manipulative and deceptive. Maybe the questions have even been implanted into my brain by more sinister people. Maybe. But here's what happens when Abraham starts to get the whole picture. He realizes that maybe our God, despite all the accusations coming from around me and in me, maybe he's perfectly righteously, holy, and just. Maybe he's not trite. Maybe if ever there is a time when he intervenes in human history to execute actual justice through judgment, maybe, I mean just maybe, he's justified. Maybe. And again, this isn't this the nature of faith? I mean, the man of faith from the New Testament that the, old, that, the, uh, that the New Testament looks back on, this Abraham, he's emerging more and more with every chapter. You're starting to see this man learn to trust God and dismantle these God concepts. It's interesting because um, culture paints uh, our questions about God in, a, in such a way that elevates us and lowers him. When, it, when in fact, once you start uncovering in the word of God the reality of life, we are actually much worse than we think we are, and God is infinitely better than we think he is. That actually, we have played the victim card with God, and we are the victimizer. Isn't that crazy? That we spend our whole life playing this card. Meanwhile, we're only getting a small snapshot into the lens of this information. 
And there's actually way more going on. How many people are going to be surprised? Narcissists on the day of judgment. When they say, you, God, were the victimizer and I'm the victim. And then he shows them Jesus and says, no, I am the victim and you are the victimizer. Like how many people have the story wrong? But like Abraham, he was convinced he was right, was he not? I'm just, you're not. I have the moral high ground, you're on trial. And yet it was such a small slice of the picture. I'm going to give you a few so what's and then an encouragement. What do we learn about Abraham? Number one, Abraham was a genuine man of compassion. I mean, underneath all of this self-righteous like rage is actually a man who is deeply concerned for his family and these people. Um, you do see regularly that Abraham, he had a, a significant amount of love deep down in his bones for people. As dumb as he could be, he could also be incredibly compassionate. And, and you can see, you can start to see that God is forming this man more and more into the man of faith. But number two, here's what we know about him. Abraham was flat wrong, though he was convinced he was right. And I, and I think for anybody in this room who is doubting or will soon doubt, I want to submit an idea for you that I really feel like could be an incredible encouragement for you. If you're doubting, preface this with God can handle it, we can handle it, your pastors can handle it, your community group can handle it, people can handle it, right? But when you're doubting, here's what I want to put in your brain. If you're doubting the goodness of God, the righteousness of God, the holiness of God, or probably more personally, God's love for you, I want to submit to you that you're wrong. I'm not submitting to you that you need to change your doubt right away because me telling you you're wrong doesn't get rid of doubt. You're talking to the chief doubter right now. You're talking to the Thomas right now. You're talking to the guy who has more questions and needs more proof than most people I know. But I, I as the doubter, have to step back on a regular basis and say, despite what I feel, here is what I know to be true. There's this beautiful principle that um, uh, I discovered in mediation a, a long time ago. And uh, it's not a short principle. If you guys can find a way to like, make this a, a cute like, like eight-word quip, that would be great for me. Um, but here's, here's the concept. Whenever something doesn't make sense, there's always a piece of information that if I had that piece of information, would make everything make sense. Like, there's always, like, whenever I look at something, I'm like, what? That, that doesn't even, like, logically make sense. Like, why would you even do that? There's always a piece of information somewhere in the ether that if I could get my hands on that piece of information, all of this insanity that I'm looking at would make sense. And so I'm sitting there, when I, whenever I deal with couples, I'm like, wow, this is, okay, something does not make sense here. Inevitably, the thing will come out. Whether or not I get to, to the bottom of it in this counseling or in this mediation or whatever it is, whether it's the day of judgment, inevitably, the day of judgment is going to reveal whether it's a motivation thing, it's a, a quiet secret sin or habit or pattern, whatever it is going on. Um, once you know all the information, everything makes sense. And this is what I found with God. There's a lot of things that just don't make sense. He seems to keep a lot of things close to the chest that I would love for him to reveal to me. But he's just like, nah, secret thing, sorry, deal with it. 
here's what I know. When, when, on the day of judgment, when all things are revealed, when the secret things of hearts are hidden, not only are all of the mediations and counseling sessions that I ever had going to make full and particular great sense, uh, all the arguments I had with my wife or my children or my mother or father or friends or whatever it is, all of those are going to come into perfect sense and I'm probably going to be very guilty in all of them, right? I probably put myself as the victim far too often, right? Anybody relate to that? No one? Okay, good. Um, here's what I know. When I, when I learn the information, it's going to make sense. And so what I've learned to do is give God the benefit of the doubt. Number three, Yahweh is always, ever, and only just. No questions asked. And if there's a distance between that truth and my perceived reality, the problem is in my perception, not in the nature of God. The challenge is when I allow myself to believe the problem is God, this is when doubt comes in and doubt enables dumb decisions. And I want to protect myself and you and my children from that. And here's the deal. You don't get rid of doubt by rebuking people. You get rid of doubt by leaning into it, allowing God to do his work in your heart, submitting it before the Lord and giving him a lot of time. I've very rarely ever seen doubt go away on a dime. Here's what I want to close with. Um, what do I do in this discrepancy? What do I do when there is a truth that my heart and my head know, but there is a, an experience or a feeling of struggle with the nature and character of God? Number one, we have to go to the word. Doubting people tend to avoid the word. And I just want to say, if you're struggling with doubt, run to the word, not from it. If you run from the word, the gap between reality and your doubt will be filled in by sinister forces that are not for your good. But when you run to the word, the word has a way of recalibrating your doubt. It's a beautiful, loving gift that God has given us. But you need to understand, it is counterintuitive. Doubting people, depressed people, do what is counterintuitive for growth and health. And so when you feel a lot of these negative things, you have to recognize that oftentimes my intuition, my impulse, my inclination in these experiences is the wrong one. And I have to go against the grain of what my body says to do, or my mind says to do, and I have to walk towards truth. Number two, we go to God in prayer. I love that. I wouldn't really call Abraham and Jesus' conversation prayer or even intercession, but he brings his issues right to the Lord, and he allows the Lord to deal directly with his concerns. Number three, give God the benefit of the doubt. If you stop giving God the benefit of the doubt, you put yourself on the moral high ground, you put yourself as God, and I'm here to tell you, you're not. I love you so much to tell you you're not. And I hope you love me enough to tell me I'm not either. But this is one of the most beautiful things we give to God because isn't this what we want God to give to us? Isn't it what you want your kids and your spouse and your friends to give you? When they look at you and something doesn't make sense, don't you want them to believe the best about you until they learn otherwise? Well, I think this is actually a really respectful thing to give to God as well. And finally, what do you do? We wait. We wait really patiently. I want to close and I want to read to you from Isaiah chapter 30, verse 18. Therefore, the Lord waits to be gracious to you. Therefore, he exalts himself to show mercy to you. For the Lord is a God of justice. Blessed are all those who wait for him. Let's pray together. Father, we, just, we come before you. We confess we are a doubting, struggling, 
frustrated group of people sometimes. And Lord, each, each one of us have seasons where some are just filled with faith and some are filled with doubt. And um, Lord, we waver, we are wishy-washy, we are up and down, we are, we are sometimes sort of faithful and sometimes faithless. And um, Lord, we're really inconsistent. And Lord, we also confess that sin has so impacted our mind and our thoughts and the way we process reality um, that probably our brain isn't always the great arbiter of truth like we sometimes think it is. Lord, we confess to you that sometimes we play the victim card and we are the victimizer. Lord, we, we are sort of unreliable in all this. And yet you are infinitely just, reliable, steady, true, unwavering. All the things that we kind of think we are sometimes, you actually are. And so God, I pray you would just continue to remind us of that. Lord, when we want to take the moral high ground, um, I thank you that you don't just come in and rebuke us and, and slap us and push us down. Um, I thank you for your patience with us. It's really beautiful. It's so meaningful. And I know I say on behalf of all of us in this room, we're really grateful um, that you have not revealed to us all of our wrong thoughts, wrong conceptions, wrong behavior all at once. But you slowly, intentionally, and patiently, patiently unravel us and put us back together. Lord, even the times where that feels really painful, we even confess to you that the pain is necessary because if you wanted it to stop, you would. And so God, we, we are, I think at the end of the day, just need to, we need to be putting ourselves into this much more humble posture when it comes to evaluating you. Would you help us with that? As we, as we shift to communion, um, what a beautiful declaration over us that the shed blood of Jesus covers our accusations, our wrong conceptions, our half-hearted worship, our judgmentalism, our finger-wagging to you, all of the doubt and the dumbness we enabled because of it. That if we're in Christ, the shed blood of your Son covers us completely and your love for us never wavers in any way. Lord, we just love you. What else could we do but remember and worship you? So God, would you, just, would, you, would you continue to do what only you can do in us? Would you dismantle us, put us back together, and over time you will, you will be vindicated as just in front of all creation, hell, heaven, and humanity. We love you, we thank you, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen?